0: Thank <music> you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc.
1: If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a
0: follow on social media at Collar underscore pod.
1: So, quarantine day 3086. (laughs) Uh, How's it going? gotta
0: love it. (laughs) It's uh, it's going great. My outfit today is sweatpants that I've been wearing for the past four days and um, a crop top that I made out of a regular t-shirt from walmart that has um what can only be described as approximately like 65 cats on the front okay just like (laughs) tons of cat faces
1: you have to send Um, me a picture of the shirt i gotta see it
0: (laughs) i will i'll snapchat i'll snapchat a picture right now because i i actually have a story about this shirt okay and this will like set the scene i'm surprised i didn't snapchat you when it happened it was a few months ago it's coming your way i'm excited all right i just sent it what in the- <laughs> <laughs> isn't it great
1: okay that's literally not what I had in mind but it's actually kind of kind of scary
0: just like a lot of cats
1: okay so many cats
0: <laughs> anyway so one time Evan and I at night I think we were going to the grocery store to get like ice cream or something and it was a week night and like we pull right out of our neighborhood and then all of a sudden there's like cop lights behind us and we're getting pulled over and we're like what the heck like He's driving. I'm not. Um, And so the cop comes and is like, oh, like, he was super nice. He was like, you guys have a headlight out or, like, a rear light? One of the lights was out. And he was like, don't worry about it. It's totally fine. Like, let me just get your information, make sure everything is good. So he goes back, you know, comes back and just, like, writes a warning. He's like, just get it taken care of. No worries. And then he, like, turns to me and he's like, so do you actually have a cat? And I was like... (laughs) what are you talking about I was like yeah I have a cat and I was just like how like why did you even ask and then I looked down and realized my shirt has like a bajillion cats on
1: it oh god that's so funny
0: (laughs) so maybe that's why we like not that I think cops usually give out tickets for like lights being out unless they have record that you've been driving around like that for a while but I think the shirt saved us it's a lucky shirt
1: yeah it uh, helps you avoid i don't know criminal penalty
0: (laughs) (laughs) if you ever don't want to get arrested by the police yeah just wear a shirt with a with a lot of cats on it i'll have to put a picture of this shirt up on the instagram in case any of the fans want to see i'll like i'll put it as like the second picture in like our (laughs) our episode post because it it really is a wonderful shirt
1: it's it's so great cool (laughs) well i don't have a cat shirt and yeah I, how
0: disappointing <laughs> i can lend you one of mine i, I have another one
1: i'm good cats kind of freak me out to be perfectly honest um we
0: liked our cat you i mean it?
1: she's okay like <laughs> but there's me this like gary also scares me as well. like there's something about cats like one minute they're there one minute they're not and That's like true. that level of unpredictability like really stresses me out, whereas I know Ollie like will not move or he will just follow me anywhere that I go. Well yes. And for so, reference,
0: Gary is a small black cat and Ollie is a massive, like fumbling uh husky.
1: He's not that big. He's actually like 35 pounds. It's very oh, really? surprising. Yeah, he's only 35 pounds, or the last time that I um like had like brought him to the vet. He's pretty small. He likes to be carried like a baby. Um, He likes to, you know, have you pet him for hours on end. But yeah, he's... I like like the predictability of Ollie. (laughs) So (laughs) that's helpful.
0: Wow. Maybe you can get a shirt with a lot of dogs on it then. Anyway, speaking of... Actors and old, and nah, I don't know where I was going with that, but today um we are doing our second round of scam cases. I actually shout out to Becca, like one of the three people that listens to this podcast my sister <laughs> <laughs> she recommended this case i I messaged her, and I was like, all right what what do you want to hear what's what's good, what's cracking so she um told me to look into the case of Linda Taylor. So that's who I will be talking about today. Um, so picture it. 1976, a former movie star named Ronald Reagan, if you've ever heard of him, was <coughs> running for president. The president, yes. Yes. <laughs> so uh, back in this time, Reagan had had some previous fame after starring in bedtime for bonzo now this bonzo is a monkey and uh i was looking up the rotten tomato review of the movie and it was forget what you've been led to believe bedtime for bonzo is a most enjoyable film and ronald reagan is not outacted by the chimpanzee
1: good good for him (laughs)
0: which is such a (laughs) that's like i don't know if that's trying to be a compliment like Are you dissing the chimpanzee or are you trying to compliment Ronald Reagan? I don't know. But anyway, so Ronald Reagan, who is just as good at acting as a monkey, was getting a little nervous. His campaign was not doing so hot and he wanted to get some extra attention. In particular, he wanted to let the people know that the welfare system was broken and corrupt. And he was the guy to fix it. So he did what politicians do best and started to stir up some fear in the crowd. Solid In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record, Reagan said. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, social security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veteran husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $1,500 a year the audience gasped how dare someone take advantage of the system so the woman he was referring to was linda taylor a mother in chicago who became the political trope later known as the welfare queen she was a black con artist who took advantage of the system to steal money from hard-working americans so she was informally known as the welfare Queen, although Ronald Reagan was very careful never to say this in his speeches. So her legacy is certainly an interesting one. Instead of looking at Taylor's case as one person acting on her own accord, she became the poster child for all people on welfare. And so I'm going to start at the beginning. So Linda Taylor, we don't even know if that's actually her name. But, so, she was originally born Martha Miller, uh, born sometime between 1925 and 1970 in Summit, Alabama. Do you know what Summit, Alabama is? Natalie went went to college in Alabama, so that's why I'm asking. Nope. I also said she was born between 1925 and 1970. That seems like a big range, so maybe that's a mistake on my part. Maybe I meant to say 1930. (laughs) Anyway.
1: (laughs) Or maybe 1925 and 1927?
0: Maybe that. (laughs) Who knows? I'm not good at stuff. Okay. Okay, we'll say she was born in the 1920s-ish. Her father was a cotton farmer, and she was one of three children. She attended school up until the third grade, and in the census documents, her and her family were actually all identified as white. She didn't quite look like the rest of her family. She had long black hair and dark skin, possibly due to her Native American heritage. So in the early 1950s, martha slash linda taylor had four children her first clifford was born in 1941 his birth certificate stated he was white her second child paul jr who was also white although her second child paul jr was also white but his skin appeared to be darker um similar to his mother's i I read it was you know his skin tone was was even darker than his mother's his father was a 24 year old ohio native who was serving in the u.s navy um His mother, according to his birth certificate, was Connie Martha Louise White. So we see here that Linda slash Connie slash Martha was just starting to, you know, get on her scams. She was um, already starting to put different names on different documents and things like that um her son johnny was born in 1950 and her daughter sandra was born shortly after johnny was unmistakably white while sandra's appearance was more ethnically ambiguous so the family moved around quite frequently over the years they lived in arkansas mississippi ohio california and chicago their family faced prejudice and racism early on Johnny recalled his brother Paul not being allowed to eat in restaurants owned by white families." It's just so strange because all of their, well, some of them, you know, appeared white and it's, Linda Taylor might not have even have been black in the first place
1: well I um so I think you mentioned this case a long time ago when we were first talking about possibly doing this podcast and so I remember looking up a little bit but I didn't read too much into it but I remember like the beginning kind of her story on something that I read was that while her mom and dad were like listed in like the census as white there's like speculation that her mom had an affair with a black man and right. the reason that they like had to keep it hush hush and all that was because interracial like relationships or relations in general were illegal, and so her yeah. mom could have her mom could have been like convicted and possibly killed just because Alabama, <laughs> right?
0: Uh, good old Alabama. This is true. Also, you know, given that she had lied so much about her past that this is an older case. There's, you know, all kinds of different information over. I had read that, too, that um, it was possible that her her mom had an affair. Um, but, you know, we don't really know. And it looks like with her her children, It there were varying degrees of, of um, what her her kids looked like. And I think there was also, you know, some different fathers, too. So it, that could account for some of it. But um so, yes, her, her son Paul, in particular, um, was experienced a lot of that prejudice and, and racism, unfortunately. Um, so, throughout her life, Taylor would take children in and also let children go. She was charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor and would later have her children taken after the police found signs of neglect in her house. She had a lot going on, as you'll see. It gets worse, trust me. So her oldest child, Clifford, left the family when he was a teenager. In the 1950s, Taylor left Paul with a black family in Mississippi. Johnny later speculated that Taylor was tired of having a mixed-race family and had finally given into the prejudice, leaving her child with the darkest skin behind, which is horrible. It's so sad. (laughs) So Johnny, Taylor, and... um. Taylor and her two children that were left, Johnny and Sandra, uh, ended up living in Chicago with Lawrence Wakefield. Wakefield was one of Chicago's last Black Gambling King pins. Um, So everyone knew that he was a scammer, but they didn't really think he was too good at it. So he was able to fly under the radar. But he actually did end up having a lot of money. So um, the family had a good life. The kids were getting new things, new bikes. They lived in a nice apartment. They had bodyguards around. Um, so Taylor referred to Lawrence as her father, she called him dad, and there didn't appear to be a sexual relationship going on there, but he did care for their family. Um, so Johnny recalled this as being the most stable period of their lives up until Wakefield unfortunately passed away. This led to the family moving around from house to house in the south side of Chicago. Um... So Cliff was gone, Paul was given away, and Johnny, around that time, had become a a full-time criminal. So he was just roaming the streets. Um, So Taylor had falsely reported that Johnny was missing, even though he had left on his own accord. And also at a certain point reported Sandra to be missing too, even though she wasn't missing. (laughs) It was weird, hard to understand that reporting, but it just seemed like, you know, she... She was making things up. And like I said earlier, you know, kids in her house were coming and going. So maybe it was just really hard for her to keep track of them. So Taylor also had a history of kidnapping children on top of all of this, you know, welfare scandal that's going on. What? Oh, this is just twist one. It gets, I like I said, it just keeps getting worse. So... Rose Termini had left her son, Raymond, with Taylor. She, uh, Taylor had babysat for Rose in the past. Uh, she babysat her daughter and it turned out fine. So she was like, great. She can just look after my kid. No problem. So it ended up taking two years for Rose to get her son back. Like, where'd she take him? I don't, I don't know. Okay. It, she just like had him. And I think since she was bouncing around, it was hard to keep track of where she was. And I don't know, you know, Rose's situation. Uh, They kind of talk about um, Linda Taylor kind of being in poverty. So in a poor area, so maybe she just didn't have like the resources to get her child back. I don't know. I don't know. She had issues. She had a lot of problems. So anyway, in 1964, a newborn child named Paul Franzak was kidnapped from the hospital by a woman wearing a nurse's uniform. 500 policemen and 55 fbi agents were on the case they still weren't able to find the missing baby boy so one of taylor's ex-husbands ended up saying taylor showed up one day and had a baby around the same time that this child went missing she claimed that she had just been pregnant this whole time she had no idea and a baby popped out and that was that um she suspiciously fit the description for the nurse perfectly that had taken this child Um, and Johnny shared that she often wore a nurse's hat around and told people that she worked in a hospital so she was never charged with the kidnapping and to this day Paul has never been found Um, it's speculated that Taylor might have ended up selling the child which is messed up a bummer, really terrible and um, actually, the articles I was pulling from, I started to look into this a little bit more. Um, I think in 2019, they actually did end up finding um, the the missing baby, well, man now. Um, so he was found in Michigan 55 years later after he went missing. I think it was because of um, those like DNA tests now, those ancestry stuff. They like finally found him. Oh, dope. Yeah. So that's good. Some good news. I mean, or not. Not, it, well, it's news. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, next twist in this story. So there was a woman named Patricia Parks. She was a school teacher with three children living in Chicago. In 1974, Patricia hired Taylor as a nanny to watch her children and help, you know, take care of things around the house. Patricia's daughter, who is also named Patricia, was 10 years old when Taylor moved into the home. She said that Taylor was the worst nanny they had ever had. (laughs) So mom Patricia was completely healthy, doing just fine before Taylor came along. And the house always had enough food to go around. You know, things were great. Um, So after Taylor was there, mom Patricia began to get very sick. And less than a year later, she was dead. Taylor had been giving her pills and had been neglecting her children. Daughter Patricia remembered her and her siblings would be sneaking dog treats from the pantry because they were so hungry. It was Taylor's job to feed them to prepare meals and there just you know didn't seem to be enough food going around the house after that. Uh, Mom Patricia had supposedly willed her home to Taylor and made her the beneficiary of a few insurance policies and she also made her guardian of her children. Taylor claimed Patricia had died from cervical cancer, but there was no indication of this in her autopsy. They also found high levels
1: of barbiturates in her system. When the- I love that she can just claim how someone else died. <laughs> like, you are not a doctor.
0: Well, yeah, and especially because they didn't find that information. Like, when you perform an autopsy, you can see that. it's just suspicious you know she was perfectly healthy this person's living with her and then a year later she just signs all her stuff over to her and dies that's not cool i don't like that um anyway so they found high levels of barbiturates in her system When the investigators came to the home, they found witch doctor's masks on the wall and a manual for voodoo. Um, Taylor told the investigators that her name was Linda Maxello, an African doctor who practiced voodoo. She said that she got her spiritual training in her supposed
1: home country of Haiti, which is just... Then how is she an African doctor? That's what
0: I'm saying. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. She doesn't even know enough about where Haiti is to know that that's not in Africa. Um, her daughter Patricia said that it was likely that her mother got duped by Taylor. Her mother was originally from Trinidad, where there's a tradition in the belief of sorcery and magic. So it seemed like Taylor was kind of taking advantage of that. Um, again, Taylor was never charged with the murder of mom Patricia. Um, she was already being investigated during this time for welfare fraud by a burglary detective. So he, the burglary detective didn't really want to share his turf with any homicide detective. So that case didn't really go anywhere from there, which is so incredibly frustrating. But skipping ahead to 1976 now I realize how, just how off my dates were earlier, saying that she was born between 1925 and 1970. That was just very wrong. So I'm sticking to the 1920s-ish. But now, now it's 1976. So Detective Jack Sherwind um, had a report. He was the guy who was investigating everything that was going on with the welfare fraud um, that showed Taylor used as many as 80s names, had received at least $1,500 in welfare cash, she was driving three brand new cars, including a Cadillac, a Chevrolet, and a Lincoln, all at the same time while collecting Illinois welfare checks and food stamps. And it was said that she would drive up to like the welfare office in her Cadillac and just go in. And she she was really flashy. She wasn't trying to hide it all, that she was really taking advantage of the system. Um, she was also a master of disguise like we talked about earlier she was able to pass for black for white for spanish for filipino it was even said that she had 30 wigs that she would use to help her create these new identities for herself um so taylor ended up being arrested and during her trial she didn't do anything at all to appear sympathetic to the crowds she would roll up to court dressed in expensive clothes, oversized hats. Um, She was often wearing like a giant fur coat. I think when you see pictures of her, that's you know, what she's usually wearing. Um, And after her trial ended in 1977, she was sent to prison. She was released on parole on April 11th, 1980. Fun fact, that is my little sister's birthday. Not in 1980, but uh, math years later, Um, but April 11th. (laughs) Happy birthday, Katie! It it just happened, which is sad because it's during quarantine, but whatever. Um, so when her parole was up, she fled Chicago and changed her name. The police ended up losing track of her. She was still running some scams here and there, but none gained the amount of media attention that she had before. And Taylor passed away in 2002 in a hospital outside of right outside of Chicago from a heart attack. So Reagan did not end up winning the Republican Party nomination in 1976. But when he was elected in 1980, he used Taylor's story as a reason to gut welfare. Over a million people ended up losing their food stamps. And that is the sad ending of that story. Um, It's, you know, a real shame that Ronald Reagan was able to use this one person who really acted alone and took advantage of the system and was overall a really bad person to stand for you know all of people on welfare and all of people getting food stamps when you know that was just a really really rare case of of someone doing that um and maybe you know showed that there were some issues going on within the system that someone was able to do that yeah it's just such a crazy story it's you know you hear that term welfare queen as kind of you think that it's, like, an over-exaggeration of the people. But it's based on a real person. But she's just one person acting alone. You know, it doesn't stand for every single person who's on food stamps or using welfare.
1: And, like, the at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of people who are or have been on welfare are not defrauding the government. No, they
0: just, (laughs) like, want to eat food and, like, are going through some hard times, clearly. It's just really... Messed up and crazy and just like, whoa. Glinda got me pretty angry that she was able to get away with
1: just yeah.
0: kidnapping children. Seriously. Also, for the amount of money that she stole, I mean, $1,500, that's like at least that she was taking, which I should have done the calculator to see how much that was in the 1970s, but... It didn't really seem like she was in prison for long enough. If she was released in, on parole in 1980, then she was only in prison for three years. Then they ended up cutting, using her story as an excuse to cut these programs. So then, and the, I, although I guess, you know, the government did that, so um, they wouldn't be like, well, it's your fault. But so many people ended up losing their support because of what she did
1: yeah not cool at all
0: also she like killed someone yeah maybe more than one person who knows what this lady had going on she was just taking people's kids killing people
1: had a very clear sense of entitlement in a way (laughs) like a sense of like no responsibility because she was letting her kids go and dropping the black ones off like with black people and like killing people (laughs) She just, whatever she wanted was hers, things. but she was not very responsible. She
0: is, like, the embodiment of a psychopath. Like, very, very 100%. In the one of the articles I was reading, it talked about how she checked off, like, every box on the, the psychopath test. Really? Or checklist questionnaire. Um, yeah. I don't think this was a case of she was like delusional and just didn't know any better she she knew what she was doing and she just like took advantage of people with her own kids like who just sends their kid away because they are having a hard time eating inside of restaurants like that's a psychopath right there
1: okay so i am doing the case of who will later be known as cassie chadwick cassie l chadwick was born elizabeth bigley in ontario canada in october of 1857 her parents owned a small farm where they raised her and her siblings according to the smithsonian magazine when she was a child she lost her hearing in one ear which led to a speech impediment as such she spoke with she spoke few words and when she did um she chose her words very carefully Um, Some of her classmates found her to be peculiar um, because she would just always sit in silence. And one of her sisters claimed that she always that she often seemed like she was in a trance, that when she was in that trance-like state, it almost seemed like she was unable to hear or see anything that didn't exist in her mind. Um, And then when she would come out of said trance, she never wanted to tell her siblings or her parents what it was that she was seeing. Um, So not really sure what all that's about um
0: sounds like a a symptom of ptsd possibly
1: her sister claimed that she would like try to hypnotize herself into this trance it was very strange
0: oh that's weird oh my gosh so okay i don't know there's a children's book it's Mm -hmm. i forget what it's called but it's called the full title but it's molly moon and it's about this kid who like finds a book and like learns how to hypnotize people um and I actually just started, like, listening to it during this quarantine because I'm, like, listening to books of my childhood to, like, bring myself comfort during these, like, Aww. extremely depressive times. Anyway, no. Um, but, yeah, that just, like, when you were saying that, that's what it reminded me of, of, like, because that's what the book talks about is to, like, go in a trance and, like. But I don't think hypnotism is real.
1: (laughs) Same. Her sister Alice also claimed that she would notice um, Elizabeth practicing the signatures of her other family members, just like scrawling like over and over her mom and dad and her brother and sister's um, signatures and so um elizabeth's life of conning began very early when she was 13 she presented a very debatable letter from an anonymous uncle claiming that he'd left her some inheritance so she took that letter to a bank and she opened an account with a small amount of cash from there she went on she went from business to business writing bad checks so the checks were actually real, but the account numbers listed on the checks didn't exist. And eventually people caught on to the fact that these faux checks were being written all around town by a child and she was arrested. <laughs> um, and so she was ultimately released to her parents because again, she was a child, and the courts believed that she was, quote, mentally troubled. And so when she was 22, she launched what would be her trademark scam. Um, So she saved up enough money for expensive letterhead. And then she came up with a fake name uh, and address of an attorney in London, Ontario. And she used the letterhead to send herself a letter from said fake attorney that notified her that a very wealthy philanthropist had died and left her a $15,000 inheritance. So um, I did some investigating to find out how much that would be today and in US dollars. And so I think that would be around $340,000 Canadian money today, which is $240,000 American money. So a lot of money for her time. (laughs) Um, And so she, uh, so after creating the letter, she went on, she went to a printer And had them create business cards for her. So at that time, socialites, they would create these little calling cards that had their name and like what they like were an heiress or like how much money they were owed or valued at. And so she basically had a printer create these business cards or calling cards that resembled what social elite would use at the time. And so her card read Miss Bigley, heiress to $15,000. And so um, it was a pretty simple scam, but it didn't end there. And so what she did was she used um, her new calling cards as evidence of her wealth. And she would go to a shop. She would pick like the most expensive product that she could to purchase. And then she would write the shop owner a check that was for more than what the product cost. And so the shop owner thinking, oh, she has her card it says that she's an heiress to fifteen thousand dollars i'll just give her cash of like the difference oh, for the product no, they yeah didn't. and so effectively these shops were paying her to steal from them so she would get the item and a surplus <laughs> oh, of cash no. um so uh, she was definitely taking advantage of a broken system there and soon after that she left canada and moved to cleveland where her sister alice had um moved with her new husband and so instead of looking for work elizabeth as she was still known as at the time took inventory of every item in her sister and brother-in-law's home she estimated what the value of all the items were and then she applied for a bank loan and she listed all of the items as her assets and collateral and once her brother-in-law found out what she did he kicked her out and um so she moved to another neighborhood in cleveland That is when she met Dr. Wallace S. Springsteen. Is he related to Bruce Springsteen? Maybe. Who knows? Um, so elizabeth a lot of sources claim that elizabeth was very plain looking which is very rude to comment on a woman's looks but um so yeah elizabeth was quote unquote plain but it's reported that her eyes had a captivating intensity a newspaper later would um call would call her the lady with the hypnotic eye um so anyway all of that is to say that wallace fell for her and he fell for her hard and fast And so they were married in December of 1883 and their marriage announcement was printed in the paper. This obviously worked out to um, her disadvantage because almost immediately several angry merchants and business owners showed up with stories about how Elizabeth the quote unquote heiress defrauded them and listed all of the debts that she owed them. And so uh, Wallace, her husband, was really angry and annoyed, but he paid off her debts because he didn't know if it would, like, jeopardize his own credit by being married to somebody who owed a lot of debt. And they ended up getting divorced less than two weeks later. That was fast. (laughs) Well, I mean... When you find out that your wife is a scammer, it's hard to it's hard to feel that same intense, intense passion and love that you felt for her eyes before, I guess. I don't know.
0: I suppose.
1: Um, and so since her past was catching up with her, Elizabeth changed her name. She became Madame Marie Rosa. And she traveled throughout Pennsylvania scamming people and perfecting her craft. Um, In one of her scams, she claimed to be the niece of General William Tecumseh Sherman, who served in the Union Army, also known as the correct side of the Civil War. And she, mm-hmm. and um and she also pretended to be really ill and had some sort of trick where she'd cause her gums to bleed, which made people think that she suffered from some kind of hemorrhage disorder.
0: If you can make your gums bleed on demand, then you definitely have something wrong with you. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, and so the people in that Pennsylvania town um, pulled together enough money to loan her to send her back to Cleveland, um where her family was. And so...
0: Oh, I laughed because I thought they were just trying to get rid of her because they thought she was gross. I mean,
1: who knows? I'm sure there was a lot of different motivation. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. And so then when they, like, wrote her to and they were, like, seeking to be, like, repaid for their loan, she sent them a letter letting them know that Madame Marie, who she was posing to be, died two weeks ago. And she even wrote a very thoughtful tribute to Madame Marie um, that she, of course, wrote herself and um, to really sell the story that Madame Marie was dead. So these people were like, crap, she died. We're not getting our money back.
0: Mm, Yikes.
1: And so um, also while she was Madame Marie, she married two different people. Um, one of these people was a businessman named C.L. Hoover and she actually had a child with him. And kind of like your case, uh, she sent this child, a son, um, to Canada, but in her case she was sending him to be raised by her parents so she could continue her grifter ways. Um.
0: Jeez, what's with people just sending sending their babies away?
1: Once C.L. Hoover died, he left her an estate worth $50,000. And um, she took the money and moved to Toledo. And at that point, she changed her name again, this time to Madame Lydia DeVere. And she worked as a clairvoyant, a scam that she had also run before. And so one of her clients hired her to be his financial advisor, paying her $10,000. Oh, no. Yeah. This man... This man, Joseph Lamb, and her other client victims um, later claimed that they were under her spell and that she had hypnotic powers, which apparently was a very popular excuse for bad behavior or misguided behavior at the time. Um, And so as Madame Lydia, she forged the signature of wealthy, prominent people on promissory notes and for thousands of dollars. And she told Lamb to cash them for her. And he did. And... It totaled out to about $40,000. She was eventually caught, and they both were arrested. But prosecutors prosecutors believe that Joseph Lamb was her victim, so he was acquitted. And she was convicted of forgery and sentenced to almost 10 years in prison. But she was released three and a half years later after sending a series of letters promising to change. And so...
0: Oh, okay. Just promise to change. You get out of prison. Right.
1: Right. It was apparently convincing enough because William McKinley, who was the governor and will eventually become president, released her, signed her, signed her papers and let her go.
0: The things white women can get away
1: with. <laughs> or women who post to be white can get away with yeah (laughs) um and so after her release she reinvented herself once more this time as cassie l hoover taking the name of her uh former slash late husband and father of her child c l hoover and she returned to cleveland this time she married a doctor named leroy s chadwick he was from a very wealthy prominent family And so once married, her name now was Cassie L. Chadwick. Um, And she brought her son back from Canada and they all moved into Leroy's luxurious home. Because his friends and family had never heard of Cassie until after they married, they obviously all had a lot of questions. Um, No one knew anything about Cassie's past, including Leroy. The only thing he shared with his inquiring family and friends is that he had back pain and Cassie gave him an impromptu massage to help, which helped relieve some of his pain. And it was at that moment that he fell in love with her compassion. (laughs) Um, And so now that they were married, she had access to real funds and, um, in actually, luxurious lifestyle and so cassie spent whatever she could on fancy expensive items from drapes to art to pipe organs to things that she could have imported from the far east and she bought like whatever she could she even had a tray of diamonds and pearls that cost almost a hundred thousand dollars which today is well over i think 2.5 million dollars like oh it's insane what
0: kind of doctor was he uh
1: i have no idea
0: i feel like that's well that's a lot of money even for a doctor i
1: think he came from a wealthy family like his family was like yeah kind of like the vanderbilts or whatever they just Got it they had okay. deep pockets um and so in 1902 this is when her imagination and greed starts to get the best of her um one day she asked her husband's friend a lawyer named james dylan to accompany her to her father's house When they arrived, James was shocked, flabbergasted, speechless. He recognized this four story mansion and she she left James in the car or the carriage. I don't know. I think it was a carriage. And he and she went and knocked on the door. So at this point, she gets a little clever with her con. She asked the butler if she can speak with the head housekeeper. So he let her in and he got the head housekeeper. Um, She told the housekeeper that there used to be a woman that worked there and she was considering hiring this woman and so she's just there to verify a reference and of course this person did not exist um cassie gave the housekeeper a random name and a description of the woman um and the housekeeper just didn't recognize it and so she kept like going through are you sure like you're, like really she's like this tall are you sure and just kept the whole ruse going for about 30 minutes and then she left and returned to the carriage where james was waiting And so he was still shocked and thinking, okay, she just went in there and talked to somebody for 30 minutes. And so he's like, I need to verify who her father is. And so he asks her and Cassie swears him to secrecy and tells him that she is the illegitimate child of Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest Americans in history
0: oh my gosh
1: yeah and so um then she gave james an envelope that she claimed was just given to her and when he opens the envelope there are two promissory notes um totaling for about 750 thousand dollars and then some securities that were estimated at about five million dollars and everything had andrew carnegie's signature on it or at least his supposed signature And so she claimed to James that her father felt really guilty about the fact that she was illegitimate. Um, And so he would give her large sums of money all the time and that she had tons of notes, just like the ones that she'd gotten that day at her house. And so, of course, James couldn't keep that like news that big a secret. And so the following year, he pretty much tells everyone who Cassie supposedly was. Because of this fake connection, she was able to get bank loans and even received outrageous financial gifts. One person who was a steel mogul in Pittsburgh connected to Andrew Carnegie gave her $800,000, which makes no sense to me, even as like stuff like that happens today. And I don't understand why give rich people free money. Like, I don't I don't get it. But whatever. <laughs> um, and then she met an investment banker from Boston named Herbert Newton, who wrote her a loan for about one hundred and forty thousand dollars. And kind of uh, recalling back to her one of her earlier scams, she wrote him like a promissory note. Um, basically promising to pay him back $190,000. And so he was like, okay, yeah, great. And so eventually he realized that he got played and Cassie is never going to pay him back. And so he filed a federal lawsuit in Cleveland against her. All of the promissory notes that she had forged with Andrew Carnegie's signature that she had entrusted Um, her bank with were now being held um, along with her fortune so anything that she had was being held to make sure that she didn't move any money during the trial and as the investigation went on unsurprisingly when it was brought to light cassie denied everything including being related to andrew carnegie saying quote it has been said repeatedly that i had asserted that andrew carnegie was my father i deny that and i deny it absolutely Apparently denying things is enough to get you off, or at least she thought it was. During her trial, Andrew Carnegie actually attended. He examined the promissory notes for himself, and he was actually offended that people actually fell for her scam, saying, (laughs) quote, If anybody had seen this paper and really believed that I had drawn it up and signed it, I could hardly have been flattered. Um, Apparently the notes were riddled with spelling, grammatical, and punctuation mistakes. And he also claimed that he hadn't signed a promissory note in decades because he was so rich that he, you know, could just pay for things. He didn't need to promise to pay for things later. And he also said that everything could have been avoided if anyone had just taken the time to ask him if he had an illegitimate daughter that he wrote a bunch of promissory notes to. Um. So Cassie was found guilty, and she was sentenced to 14 years in prison, and she died two years into her sentence at the age of 50. Oh, bummer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's sad that she died, but also not good what she did. Yeah, I mean, that was just quite the quite the scam Uh, kind of reminiscent a little bit to your case was except she didn't kill or kidnap anyone um but yeah just pretending to be a a bunch of people (laughs) like and yeah she took the route of pretending to be rich whereas i guess your person um linda took the route of pretending to be poor so
0: (laughs) right did you have you ever seen um catch me if you can
1: the movie
0: yeah no leonardo dicaprio
1: yes yes yes
0: yeah so it's like based on a true story right of this guy who like pretends to be a pilot and pretends to be a doctor and like he yeah. does like check fraud mm-hmm. kind of stuff yeah and then since it's based on a true story he gets a job later with the fbi because when you're a white man and you do crimes and frauds they'll just when you're do that your job clever the yeah <laughs> our music is the track wasteland by joseph mcdade his patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below any mistakes are entirely our own so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases
1: We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the crisis text line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor.
0: You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week
1: for another episode of Pink Collar, a True Crime Podcast.